Effective Living with Reverend Henry Hubert. May you be blessed as you listen. Now, the message. Lord, you Continue my teaching on spiritual warfare. I want to say that this teaching is so important that uh, as much as possible, I expect people to make notes. Recently, a pastor called me and said, I wanted clarification about something. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. So what is the meaning of the gate of hell? Then I explained to him and I recommended some books to him to go and buy. So what I'm teaching now, even most pastors don't know know it, I'm telling you. Next Sunday, I'll be teaching on what is the meaning of the gate of hell because most of you don't even understand what it means. But these teachings are so important. They are teachings I do for pastors. Because for somebody to be pastoring and not know the, what spiritual warfare is all about, is real disaster. Somebody literally write and say, Holy Spirit, give me understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, I started teaching about the fact that every believer, the day you give your life to Jesus, the battle has begun. It's too late for you to decide, should I join the fight? Should I not join? You're already in. Too late for any deliberations. But the Bible makes us understand that the warfare that we are in is what? It's spiritual. It's not physical. It's not against human beings. It's spiritual. And the key to having victory in any fight, whether it's spiritual or physical, is strength. Strength. So strength is very, very important. I explained that when the Bible says we should be strong, Paul qualified it by saying that we should be strong in the Lord. In the Lord. Somebody say in the Lord. Somebody says strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord means rely on God as your source of strength. Not rely in your own strengths and your own connections and your own abilities, in your own predictabilities. All those things will fail you. And we have an example in the Bible. Peter said to Jesus, everybody can deny you. And me, I'll die for you. And Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan has targeted you. He's about to play with you like a ludu. Ludu dies. And instead of Peter taking what Jesus has said and begin to pray, he was so sure of his own self-confidence that he didn't take Jesus seriously. Jesus told him, before the cock crows, you deny me three times. Peter said, you lied. Peter said, Jesus, this time around, you lied. Can never happen. I cannot do that. But it was a few hours later. Peter's problem was that he was overconfident. Overconfidence means that your confidence is not coming from your reliance on God. It's coming on your own self-abilities. It is good to be confident. But people whose strength is in the Lord, they are confident, but they are also very cautious. Caution is not fear. Caution is discretion. We follow and seek the guidance of God. So Paul said, be strong in the Lord. I'll show you today an example of somebody whose strength was in God. 1 Samuel chapter 30, from verse 6, from verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Amen. Same problem, different reactions. What was the problem? All of you know this story. 
David and his mighty men. I want to say mighty men. David had, this, I mean, the strongest army you can ever think about in terms of physical strength. Because during the time Saul was chasing him in the bush, he became an outlaw living in the bush. And David realized he was not the only criminal that Saul was looking for. Anybody that has ever misbehaved towards Saul that ran away, they all heard of David and they all ran to him and became one with him. Because they've all heard that David had killed Goliath, so they knew that this guy is strong. Criminals, they come together and they want to rally around the strongest of the criminals. So over there, an army of outlaws began to develop. Then there were also some mercenaries. When I say mercenaries, it means that people who form their to army and they carry out military expeditions at a fee. You pay them and they, they go and fight for you. All these mercenaries also went and joined camp. So David had a very great and strong army long before he became king. So when he became king, it was this army that was his closest allies. So at this very time that we are reading, David was not yet a king. And the Bible said he went to fight. They went to fight somewhere. And by the time they came back, an army of the Philistines have invaded their town, burned the whole city down, captured all their wives and children, and took them away. And the Bible said these mighty soldiers, I mean warriors, they were all crying. As you tell it, there was a big problem, big problem. No matter how strong you are, there's a day of calamity. I said it last Sunday. There's something called the day of adversity. They were crying. At the end of the day, leadership takes all the blame, isn't it? They said, it was David who said we should go out and fight. If, the, if he had not said we should go out and fight, we would have been here and our children would have been saved. So let's, let's stone David. Let's kill him. That means that the situation was very bad and very serious. But the Bible said that David, who, who would he blame? Who would he blame? He was the leader. So he didn't have anybody to blame. He didn't have anybody to encourage him. But the Bible said that he strengthened himself in what? The Lord. And that is what Paul was saying, be strong in the Lord. If your strength is in people, the day that those people become, also have trouble, you'll be in problem. So the reason why Peter said, I will die with you, that Peter believed that Jesus was so powerful. Nobody can do him anything. Because he saw Jesus walking on the sea. He knew Jesus was so powerful. But when Peter saw that Jesus was arrested, he was being slapped from back and left, right, right front, center, Peter became confused. Your strength must not be in people. The Bible said it is a curse to put your trust in a human being and make that person your reliance. It's a curse because it's not sustainable. Inherent in every human being is a weakness. David strengthened himself in the Lord. Somebody said, let me write down and say, my strength is in the Lord. Uh, it is this same David who said, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But look at verse 7. You will see everything I'm talking about. Then David said to Abiata the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the effort here to me. And Abiata brought the effort to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. And without fail, recover all. Now, David is in a place of desperation. And he is a warrior, and he has a strong army of warriors with him. If you come into your home and you see that, you know, an army have come to ransack your city, what's the natural thing to do? Chase them, isn't it? And David has a strong army that could have pursued these people. They had horse, horses, fast-moving horses, chariots, everything. But 
David didn't say, oh, you know that me, I am a warrior. You can't take my wife and children and go scot-free. I'm coming after you, and by the sundown, I'm going to make sure everybody's dead. No. He first of all asked the priests to bring the effort. The effort is what they used to seek the mind of God. There was a special clothing that the priests, when they wear it and they pray, they're able to know the mind of God. Yeah, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not with us like the way he is in the New Testament. You know what David did? Despite the urgency of the fact that people's wives and children have been kidnapped and taken away, and there is the urgent need to chase after the enemy, David took his time to first seek the will of God. Do you know what that is showing? That is an indication of caution. David was very confident in his own ability, but he was also cautious. Lord, should I go? Will I be able to overtake them? Will I recover? If God had told him, don't go, David would never have gone. That is the difference between overconfident people and people whose strength is in the Lord. Yeah, people who are overconfident, they do everything anyhow because they think they have it. And that is the recipe for failure. David was the only king in Israel who never lost any battle for the 40 years that he ruled. Every battle he went, he won. Why? Not because he was depending on his track record. I've killed Goliath. I've killed all kind of things. You know, me, I'm an, you know, I'm unbeatable. You, you try me, I finish you. He was not that kind of person. He was Still, every battle, seeking the face of God, the guidance of God. Lord, should I go? Will I win? How do I go about it? And you know the rest of the story. The Bible said, when they went out, they overtook the armies, killed all of them, recovered everything. No one child was lost. I pray that you will recover everything you have lost. In the name of Jesus. So, our strength, it should be in the Lord. Somebody say, my strength is in the Lord. In the book of Matthew 12, verse 29, Jesus thought about strength in warfare. Matthew 12, 29. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? That is Jesus talking. He said, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man. Now, the first question is, how can you bind a strong man unless you are stronger than the strong man? How can you catch a strong man, bind him when he is stronger than you? It's not possible, isn't it? So Jesus, by this, is implying that for you to enter a strong man's house and take what he has stolen from you, you must be stronger than the strong man. You must be stronger than the strong man. So as a believer... You have to understand the place of spiritual strength. That is the beginning of spiritual warfare. You have to be strong spiritually. And strength has nothing to do with titles. Strength has nothing to do with connections. Strength has nothing to do with jargons. Satan is not f- afraid of your jargons. He is mindful of your strength, spiritual strength. How do we become strong in the Lord? That's where we want to start from today. How do we become strong in the Lord? Ephesians 6 Verse 13, let's read 12, maybe from 10, so that we just get the whole picture clearly. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So how do we become strong in the Lord? Put on the whole armor of God. A believer who is strong is the one who has 
learned how to put on the whole armor of God and how to use the armor. How do I become strong? Put on the whole armor of God and know how to use it well. So that's what I want to teach you today. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against what? The wiles. I explained wiles last Sunday. I said it means what? Strategies. Schemes. Satan is a strategist. So if you're not a strategic person, you are in trouble. Satan is not a fool. If anybody tells you Satan is stupid, the person just deceived you. Put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the words of the devil. Verse 12. He said, the reason why you must put on the whole arm of God is because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, look at the interplay of words. Look at that words. The first thing the Bible said about the armor of God is put it on. Bible said put on. Verse 11 said put on the whole armor of God. Look at verse 13. It said take up the armor. What's the difference between put it on and taking it up? What's the difference? The first one is put it on. The second one is take it up. To take it up means know how to use it. Because the fact that you are wearing an armor does not mean you win the battle. It is your skill in the use of the armor. Now, at the time Paul was writing, he had a picture of what an armor is. So I want us to look at that. Because that is different from what we call armor today. Can you give me the picture? Okay. These are Roman soldiers. In the days when Paul was writing, this is how soldiers looked like. This is how they looked like. And Paul was suggesting that you are a soldier in Christ. And a soldier, one of the important parts of the military training is how to dress appropriately for war. Johnson, I hope I'm right. You can be forgiven in the military for certain things, but you can't be forgiven for not knowing how to dress, how to lace your boots, where to put the gun. I mean, you're just dressed anyhow. So where are you going? I'm going for war. No. Your appearance tells that you have already lost the battle. You are a casualty. So Paul was telling the believers, you must know how to put on the armor of God, like the Roman soldier knows how to wear his armor. Because each item on the armor has an important purpose. You can wear everything and left with only one and still be in danger. That's why he said the whole armor and it was compulsory that before you go to war, you must look like this. You can't say me, I don't like wearing helmets. You know, when I wear my head feels hot. So I don't wear, no. The captain will require that. Put the helmet on. It's better to feel hot and come back alive than to be feeling cool on your head and die. So the captain will require, they inspect how you look before they allow you to go. That is why when David told Saul, I'll face Goliath, the first thing Saul did was what? He took his armor and gave it to David. He said, where do you need this to survive? But David said, I am not going for that kind of fight. The fight I'm going for is not sword and spear and shield. I'm going for another kind of fight. So I had no idea that David had another kind of battle strategy. The Bible said we must put on the armor. It doesn't mean we should dress like this today. Dressing like this today is nothing. Is somebody telling you we are carrying prophetic direction? Everybody come to church with a helmet, come to church with a shield. We are going to block all the... No, no. I've heard a church, they said, bring sword. Everybody should go and buy sword. Bring, we are going to kill all the enemies. Anyway, I came to tell you, this thing was written by Paul around A.D. 45. That means thousands of years ago. 
If it was today, he would have mentioned other things. So, the armor of God. Now, what did Paul mean when he said the armor of God? Everything is stated there for us. So, give me back my scripture. The armor has been described so that the Bible doesn't want to leave anybody in suspense. From verse 13, he said, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That means the battle, the day of battle. And having done all to what? Stand. Now, the challenge with what Paul is saying is that there is an evil day for everybody. That there are times and seasons where Satan attacks you. The unfortunate thing is you never know when he's attacking you. So Paul said, put on the whole arm of God all the time. Yeah, he won't send you advance notice. I'm coming for a fight. Prepare for me. No. Any time, any day, anywhere you find yourself, you can come under attack. So that Paul said, put on. Now, to put on means that the fact that you are born again does not mean you are wearing the armor. Being born again puts you on the battlefront. But being born again does not automatically put the armor on you. You have to know how to put it on. That is why this teaching is very important. Because for all you know, many Christians are like a soldier at war wearing no armor. Unprotected and skillful. Many believers are like that. Many pastors are like that. They are on the forefront. That's why I tell people, the fact that God has called you does not mean you will be successful in ministry. Calling doesn't equal success in ministry. Go on the net and check. Google how many pastors quit the ministry every month. You'll be shocked. It's in thousands because Satan will come after you. Satan will fight you. Calling is the number one step to ministry success. You need to be trained. Yeah, you need to be trained. And pastoral work is one of the most difficult professions in the world. That means the training in to becoming pastor should be more serious than training to be a lawyer or training to be a doctor. And yet, people are patient when they want to become doctors to be properly trained. You know why? Because when somebody sits in front of a doctor, that person's life is in danger. One wrong prescription, and that person is gone. But what we also don't know is that when somebody sits in front of a pastor, that person is equally in danger because pastors have messed people up with wrong teachings, wrong counsel, wrong advice, wrong everything. But the pastor himself doesn't know anything except praise the Lord and hallelujah. Pastoring is not just standing here wearing suits and preach like I'm saying. Pastoring is what happened before I came to stand here and what happens after I live here. That is the real way. As for this one, every one of you can do it. You stay in this church for three years, you should be able to stand here and preach well. Do you hear what I mean? Every one of you stay in this church for three years and you study everything I teach, you should be able to come and stand here and everything you preach should make sense. But there's a warfare. There's a warfare. And so, if you are here today, God wants me to help you to have victory in every battle. I said victory in every battle. Victory in your marriage, victory in your career, victory in your business. Anywhere Satan wants to attack you, even in your health, even in your life. I've seen people who have died before their time because they just couldn't handle the fight. But you will not die before your time. Amen. I said you will not die before your time. Amen. In the name of Jesus. All right, let's go on. So from verse 14 Paul took time to outline what the armor is about. He says, stand therefore having gathered your waist with truth. So the first is the belt. You know we use belt to tighten the waist. 
Isn't it? Okay. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shot your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication. So let's count. I want us to count how many items are mentioned there. Or who counted? How many did you get? Nobody. Okay, so let's go back. I thought somebody did so that I give you a gift. Let's go back from verse 14. So stand, therefore, having gathered your waist with truth. That is one, isn't it? Your waist, that means the belt, is what? Truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So number two is what? The breastplate. Stand, therefore, having, and having shot your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Number what? Three. The third is what? The sandal. And the, the thing that covered the, the legs. All right? Okay? So the first one is what? The belt. Second is breastplate covers your chest and your back. The third is the sandals. And above all, taking the shield of faith. So the fourth is what? The shield. And take the helmet of salvation. So the fifth is what? The helmet. And the sword of the spirit. The sixth is what? The sword. And then verse 18 gives us the last one. Praying always with all prayer. You can't talk about warfare and take prayer out. All right. So how many things do you find? Seven. Who can mention all? The first one is what? The belt. Second, breastplate. Third, sandals. Fourth, a shield. Fifth, helmet. Sixth, sword of the spirit. Seventh, prayer. Prayer. All right. So let's get the meaning of this quickly. The first one is what? The belt. He said the belt of truth. So the belt stands for what? Truth. What did the Bible mean when it said truth? Two important meaning to the word truth. The first one is Jesus referred to the knowledge of God as truth. John 8, 31. No, verse 32, he said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. What was Jesus referring about? Verse 31 tells us that he was referring to knowledge. Knowledge. So spiritual warfare begins with knowledge. Didn't you find out that the Bible said, my people are destroyed because of what? The devil. Because of lack of knowledge. So knowledge is the belt that puts the whole armor together. I know when you don't wear a belt, the whole dress, it can be very nice, but it can go out of behavior. Knowledge. Knowledge. That means to be a strong believer, you must have knowledge. When I say knowledge, I mean knowledge of Scripture. Knowledge of Scripture. That means understanding the Word of God properly. Because Satan can never defeat you beyond your ignorance. Knowledge. Proverbs 24, verse 4. Proverbs 24, verse 4. It said, by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. By knowledge. Look at verse 5. I like verse 5. He said, a wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. As I'm teaching you now, I'm giving you knowledge and you are becoming stronger. Yeah. That's why a church that doesn't teach the Bible is a weak church. 
It doesn't matter how much prophecies are going on there. That church does not have a future. And the, the members are going nowhere. Knowledge is the secret of strength. So when the Bible said the belt of truth is talking first of all about knowledge, having the knowledge of God. Number two, it's also talking about you as a believer living a life that is void of dishonesty and deception. You must be a truthful person. Truth. You must have the knowledge of the truth and you must yourself be a truthful person. Now, why is it important to be a truthful person? Because only one person is called in the Bible the deceiver. It's the devil. Jesus called him the liar and the father of all lies. So, every time you decide to begin to live a life of lies and dishonesty, you are willfully making yourself a child of the devil. When I teach demonology to pastors, I say one of the ways you can tell somebody is possessed is lies. Demon-possessed people lie more than the average. I'm talking about strategic lying. Like, you can catch him red-handed, and in the split of a second, he can come out with something that will blow your mind. Deceptive people, 90% of the time, if you are doing discernment, deceptive people, 90% of the time, they have a demonic problem. Let's leave that one. We are not studying demonology today. I think we're going to be studying that in this teaching. A little of it for now. So, truth is what? Knowledge of God. Having the knowledge of God and living the life of truthfulness. Let's go to the next one. The second one is what? The second one is what? Breastplates. Breastplates. What is a breastplate? It is a metallic dress that is made specially to protect the chest and the back from arrows and also from any stray sword that the shield couldn't block. So it protects the heart because the heart is very important for human living. So the breastplate, most of the time, is made of metal or hard leather that is difficult for the sword to pierce through. And Paul said, the breastplate that we must wear is the breastplate of righteousness. Somebody say righteousness. Now, why is righteousness important in spiritual warfare? Because Satan is the accuser. If you don't understand righteousness, you can never fight the devil. Because you'll say, hey, are you trying to bind me? You of all people, you too. If people are binding me, you too, you are binding me. You forget what you did yesterday. Pastor didn't see, but you know what you did. This prayer you are praying, God will never hear you. Satan, he talks to people. How many of you have heard that before? In the form of guilt. Satan's not strong. One of the strongest weapons of Satan is guilt. He always wants to make you to feel condemned. He always wants you to feel guilty. Meanwhile, before you commit the sin, he's the same person who tells you, oh, it's nothing. Oh, this thing is not anything. You, you go ahead and do it. You just plead the blood of Jesus and you are cool. The same Satan who encouraged you first to sin, and after you sin, you say, aha, you see, I thought you said you are a child of God. I thought you said you are a believer. I thought you said you go to church. When you are praying, say, ah, look, 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 look. Listen to, listen to, listen to your tongues. This, your tongue is nothing. All this, your prayer is nothing. You know, sometimes you can be praying in the middle of your prayer. A voice is telling you, that's the devil. And it is part of warfare. Because if you don't win the fight over there, sometimes people are, especially in spiritual warfare, they are especially some demon who just manifest physically in your presence with horns on the head. No. no. The accusation is part of his strategy to fight you. 
Guilt. Revelation 12, 10. He said, the accuser of the brethren. So, you need to understand righteousness. Look at Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So, if you understand the righteousness of God, you become bold. Satan can never intimidate you. He can never accuse you. He can never make you feel guilty. I've never woken up any moment and feel guilty about anything. And I'll teach you why. Now, in the New Testament, when you give your life to Jesus, righteousness is no more a result of your works. I'll say it again. Some of you didn't get it. When you give your life to Jesus, your righteousness is no more a result of your good deeds. The fact that, you know, in the Old Testament, it said you must do everything perfect before you become you call righteous. In the New Testament, it says the day you give your life to Jesus, you have become what? Righteous. Therefore, live through to what Christ has made you. So the New Testament is a reversal of the Old, the Old Testament says you obey all the laws, then you become righteous. I'll give you an example. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke 1, 5. There was in the days of Herod, Zachariah, and uh, Elizabeth. We all know about them. Verse 6. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God. Look at this. They were hot. Before God. Uh-huh. Walking in what? All. You know these people are not the Old Testament. Because Jesus was not yet born. He had not even died. So these people, even though there are stories in the Gospels, they are still under the Old Testament. Their righteousness was accredited to what? Walking in all the commandments and ordinances. So righteousness was not even about the commandments, no, ordinance. Ordinance means all the laid down rituals and procedures. And, and it's, a, it's a tough thing. But that was the requirement at that time because Jesus had not yet paid the perfect sacrifice for sin. So when Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross, the Bible said two things. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. I'll show you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Let's read it together. For he made him who knew no sin. Who is he talking about? Who did he know any sin? Jesus. So God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for who? For us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, so the Bible said when Jesus was on the cross, God made him a sinner on our behalf. Why? Because it is the sinner that needs to be hung on the cross. The Bible said the soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is what? Death. Now, somebody who has never sinned before came and said, no, you must not die anymore. Come. He said, you must not die anymore. I'll take your place. Come and stand behind me. He said, stand behind me. I take your place and I die for you. After I've died, did this guy need to die again? No. All right. Is he now righteous? Yes. Why? Because his punishment has been taken by me. So on the cross, thank you. On the cross, Jesus took my place. No, no, no. Don't clap yet. Don't clap yet. Because that's what we always heard. But let me add what you need to hear more. Jesus did not only took your place. You too, you took his place. Now you can clap. Now, <laughs> now, if Jesus took my place, he became what? Sin. That is what the Bible said. God made him who knew no sin to be what? 
sin. Jesus became a sinner on the cross. That is why even God turned his face away from him. He said, my God, my God. Now, listen, if you read the whole gospel, that was the only time Jesus referred to the Father as my God. Never again. Every other place, you refer my Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. Even the disciples, your Father, your Heavenly Father. When you want to pray, pray that our Father. But at that moment, he couldn't call him my Father. You know why? Because he had become a sinner. Now, God's presence left Christ at that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where was the presence? It left. Where did he go? It came to me. The presence came to me. Why? Because God can't stay with a sinner. So his presence left the sinner on the cross, and he came to the righteous guy, who is me. So on the cross, there was an exchange. So Jesus said, anyone who wants to come after me, let him take up his cross daily. Do you know how that means? It means always remember the cross, the exchange that took place. Romans 8 verse 1. When you hear this kind of teaching, you see that the devil is already paralyzing. He doesn't, he doesn't like Christians to hear this kind of teaching. Now, let's read together. Ready, go. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is therefore when? No. Now. 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 Somebody say now. So there is therefore now no condemnation. Satan doesn't have a right to accuse me. Even when I do wrong, he's not qualified. Okay, so pastor, there's God endorse wrongdoing. There's God endorse sin. No, he doesn't endorse sin. And what did he do about it? He will cause you to know the truth. He will cause you to what? Know the truth. That's what I'm teaching the things I'm teaching. Now, when you know the right thing, and you refuse to do it. Do you know what's going to happen to you? You'll be a failure. Okay? Now, so, Dr. Beckham has children. Do you love your children? Is that enough to make them successful? Thank you. Frank, no amount of love for your children will make them successful. So, God loves you. Yeah. First John 3 verse 1. He said, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called what? Children of God, actually. First John 3 1. It just sounds, but the Bible is saying children. Because when it says sound like that, you are leaving the women out. Over the women you are in, say amen to that. Amen. Now, now, look at it. It said, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called what? Children of God. Bible is saying that the expression of God's love towards mankind is that he decided to call human beings his children. Because in the Old Testament, there is nowhere you see God calling anybody my child. Go check. Nobody. Job, Moses, Abraham, they were all his servants. In fact, the closest he got to was Abraham. He called him my friend. But I tell you, there's something about children that friends can never get to. But we are not God's friends. We are not his servants. We are his children. And not just his children. He loves us. But let me tell you, his love for you is not enough to make you successful. If my children will become successful, they need to be taught the right thing. They need to be trained. They need to be disciplined. They must have good character, good behavior. They must know the principles of life that make success. And they must be willing to put it to practice. So what is the purpose of scripture for us today? 
so that we will know what it takes to become successful. Now, if you know the truth and you refuse to do it, say, me, I'll live my life the way I like. God's love for you doesn't change, but you'll be a failure. With all his love for you, you'll be a failure. That's why you see Christians who die young, who suffer many problems. You see Christians in church for 100 years, they have never prospered. It is not God who has made you a poor person. It is your lifestyle. But as for you and God, his love for you is unconditional. The Greek, the Greek word is agape. It is the sacrificial, unconditional love. In fact, that love didn't start the day you gave your life to Christ. It started before. It was his love that made him die for you. Okay, are we, are we there now? So the Bible says that righteousness in the New Testament is not according to your good deeds. It's according to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So every day you wake up and you say, look, I'm a child of God. Somebody say, I'm a child of God. Somebody say, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That alone paralyzes every spirit of accusation. So, Pastor, what do I do? We are all human. How many of you know we are all human? What do I do when I do the wrong? Ask God for forgiveness. Confess your sins before God. Ask God for forgiveness. First John chapter 1, from verse 6, it says that the blood of Jesus. This one was not there in the, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, every year, they did what they called atonement. They have to send animals. They have to be ritual. The high priest himself must be very careful. Otherwise, he goes to the Holy of Holies, he will die. I mean, and it is every year. I mean, it's not easy. But the Bible said that if we say that we have fellowship with him, with who? Jesus. And walk in darkness, we lie. That means Jesus came into your life and made you a child of God. And he didn't only make you a child, he made you righteous. So from today, live true to what Christ has made you. I'll explain that better a little bit more. And we lie and do not practice the You see the thing? You see, he's talking about what? Practicing the truth. Practicing the truth. Amen? Practicing the truth. He said, say you have fellowship with Christ. And you are still living the old lifestyle of sin. You are still fornicating. You are still living, you know, very ungodly lives. Cheating people, extortioning people, lying to people. You are very wicked. You are ungodly. Some of you are, you are, you are still going to church, but are still going to the shrine, meddling with all manner of things, practicing all manner of spiritism and all manner of things. Look, Bible said you are a liar. If you are a true child of God, show it by your lifestyle, not by your mouth talk. If you are a child of God, you don't need to announce it. People might see. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. He said, you lie, you do not practice the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. From what? How many sins? This is the reason why Satan can never accuse you unless you allow him. The blood can cleanse every sin you committed yesterday. But this is no excuse for you to keep doing the wrong things. You know why? Because there is another law that says you reap what you sow. Recently, somebody was preaching to me about forgiveness. And I was just saying in my head, I hope this guy know that forgiveness does not mean willful sin. Are you hearing me? Because forgiveness is a command from God, isn't it? But trust is a process. Sometimes God can forgive you, but can he trust you again? Sometimes not even God. Can people trust you? For instance, if I commit adultery, God forbid, God forbid 1,000 times, 1,000 times. Okay? Will God forgive me if I ask him for forgiveness? Will God for, I heard somebody said no. Will God forgive me? He'll forgive me. He said the blood of Jesus cleanses from all unrighteousness. But will you trust me again? 
especially when you see a lady coming to shake my hands. Especially if your wife is coming to shake me, say, hmm, suffer with you. <laughs> will my wife trust me again? No. So the blood will cleanse you, but you will bear the consequences of your actions. Your actions. So you see, when we teach grace, people say, when you are teaching this, you are encouraging people to say, no. When you teach it right, people will rather re- live right uprightly. Yeah. People will rather live uprightly. So who is righteous? Everyone who has given his life to Jesus. Romans 3. Who is a righteous person? Anyone who has given his life to Christ is righteous. But it is now your duty to do what? Live through to what Christ has made you. Now, look at this scripture and I'll finish with the breastplate of righteousness. This is where many believers miss it. No, there are Christians who are still dealing, fighting one guilt of 10 years ago. Because Satan has made that place your weak point. When you see that you are becoming strong and powerful, you are worrying too much. Then it comes, hey, what do you think you are doing? You. And then all your confidence, all your faith. You know, there are people today who are accusing themselves. You know, I know the reason why God didn't bless me is because of what I did. You know, one day I was talking to somebody said, I know that me, when I was in the world, I was too bad. That's why I'm, I said, hey, you are not better than me. If it was a badness, I think I'm not the one you should be talking to. I said, hey, it is not your body. It is ignorance. That's the Bible starts with the belt of truth. You must know the truth. And the truth to what? Make you free. Despite Satan's, all his powers. You will be free. Look at this. He said, but the righteousness of God apart from the law. That means... This righteousness is not according to the laws of the Old Testament. There's a new kind of righteousness that Jesus brought. I think I'll give you one more scripture apart from this. Revealed, being witnessed by what? The law and the prophets. You know, Paul is saying that all the laws of the Old Testament, all the prophets, prophecies from the prophets have recognition for this kind of righteousness. He said they witness to it. In other words, they salute it. Because this one is a higher law. What is the righteousness of God? Now, verse 22. He said, even the righteousness of who? The righteousness of God. Through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. To all, on all who believe. So this righteousness that is from God, it comes on people through Jesus. When they do what? When they believe in Jesus. When they believe in Jesus. Last scripture, Romans 10, 3. Uh, no, 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 no. We haven't finished. We haven't finished with the Romans 3. So many scriptures in my head. Romans 3, what, what, what did you read? 20 what? 22. That's how you memorize scriptures. You study it, you stay with your head. Amen. Romans 3 verse what? 22. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I want you to see this. What is the basis for this? The law. The law. What is the basis of righteous, for righteousness? The finished work of Jesus on the cross. And your faith... Give me Romans 10. And then I'll explain to you, he said, righteousness by faith. Verse 3. He said, for they, being ignorant of what? God's righteousness. Hmm? And seeking to establish what? Their own righteousness. What was the result? They have not submitted to their righteousness. So there are two kinds of righteousness. God's righteousness. Your own righteousness. Now, 
The reason why many people fail in spiritual warfare is because they are, work, they are fighting with their own righteousness. And Satan knows where to get you. He's the same person who encouraged you to do the wrong. Yeah, the Bible says that if righteousness was by our own perfection, nobody would be righteous before God, ever, ever. He said, our righteousness is filthy. It's like filthy rats. God's standard of holiness is too high. No human being can meet it. Meet it. That's why he himself came and became the standard for us. So there are two kinds of righteousness. The one Bible wants us to have is God's kind of righteousness. That's what Romans 3, 22, 23 told us. The God kind of righteousness is what? Righteousness which is from God by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, how does that happen? How does that happen? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ means that believe you are a child of God. How many believe you are a child of God? Now, faith for righteousness also means believe you are a righteous person. Now, this is where many people have a challenge. You know, when you are in Christ, you get born again, and the Bible said, Christ has made you rich. We all believe it, isn't it? How many wait till you are rich before you start calling yourself rich? No, you call yourself rich now, and then you become rich. How many wait till you are healthy before you start saying, I'm healed? By his stripes, I'm healed. By his stripes. You say it now before the healing happens. Is that not it? The same way you say, I'm rich when you are poor, before riches come. The same way you say, I am healthy before you become healthy. The same way you call yourself righteous. And what you call yourself, you become. What you call yourself. So if every day you get up and you said, look, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I say every day. I wake up in the morning and I say, thank you, Lord, for the blood. The blood that paid the price. If it was by my own perfection, I will never, ever, ever be qualified to come close to you. But because of your blood that was shed on the cross, I am now a child of God. I am now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the blood. Then I turn to sin and say, devil, I rebuke you by the blood of Jesus. Every voice of accusation, I silence it. Every spirit of guilt. Because guilt is a weapon in the hands of the devil. Today, I rebuke every guilt in your life. In Jesus' name. Let's move to the next one. Breastplate of righteousness. Too long. Third one is what? The sandals. Now, if you look at the armor of the Roman soldiers there, number one, the sandal must fit your leg. And then there's something to cover the front of the, the shin. Okay? This one, they didn't have it, but this one have it. The purpose is to protect your feet. Protect your feet. Because you need your two legs to keep standing. Because at the end of the day, when you fall, you lost the fight. And the Bible said, your feet... In the spiritual armor, the sandal stands for what? The readiness to preach the gospel. Readiness to preach the gospel. Readiness to preach the gospel. You know what that means? It means that every believer, like I taught somewhere this year in April, every believer must know what the gospel is. That's why I take my time to teach it. What is the gospel? You must be able to sit a friend of yours down, a family relative of yours down, and just in two minutes, put the gospel to the person in five simple points. How many can do that today? I know many of you have forgotten. Now, why is the gospel part of spiritual warfare? Because Satan's number one agenda is to make sure nobody becomes born again. Satan doesn't care what happens on earth as long as it doesn't lead to salvation. So the salvation of souls is God's number one agenda. The salvation of souls is Satan's number one hindrance. He wants to hinder it. So everywhere you are going, whatever you are doing, you must factor in the need to talk about Jesus to people. Now, readiness to spread the gospel also means your life, your life must be testifying about Jesus to people. I have seen many, many people who are suffering in church and God bless them. They don't want anybody to know, even know who they truly are, that they are children of God. I have seen people who sit down at a public function. They can't pray over their food. They are feeling shy. You are ashamed of Christ. 
But, you know, there's, uh, there are some guys who come to um, give me water every month, bottled water, plenty of it. The driver is a Muslim. You know, recently I, I heard my doorbell, I came out. The boys were packing the water. The guy was praying because it was the time of prayer. He put something, he was looking somewhere, didn't even mind me. Hot sun in the afternoon, by the, just by the road, he was praying. They are bold about their religion. We are ashamed. But this preparation to preach the gospel, everywhere you find yourself, don't put a covering over Jesus in your life. Don't be ashamed to let people know. Do you know what that does? It speaks to others to turn to the Lord. Now, I think every religion is aggressive more than Christianity. Yeah. If you see the way other religions are aggressive to get converts, Christians know because it doesn't mean anything to us, but it is part of our warfare to depopulate the kingdom of darkness, to release people from the bondage of Satan. It is part of spiritual warfare. Yeah, that is why one place God releases presence more is crusades. Miracles happen in crusades not because the evangelist is anointed. Because Jesus wants people to be saved. Jesus wants people to be saved, so he has to do something spectacular. That is why you don't have to hide your testimonies. Because even your testimony is part of warfare. Do you know that? Your testimony is speaking about what? Jesus. And Satan hates you to share your testimony. Because sometimes when you, when you share a testimony, you feel as if you're under attack. But you know the Bible said they overcame the devil by what? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Testimony is part of warfare to announce Satan's defeat and to testify about what Jesus has done in your life so that others can be saved. Listen, until you come to the place where you want to make Jesus public, everywhere in your family, in your workplace, in your, among your colleagues, everywhere, you want everybody to know that the secret to how far you have come is Jesus. Until you come to that place, there's a level of victory in spiritual warfare. You can never attain it. You cannot. Yeah. If this thing will put a dent on the name of Christ, don't do it. That's warfare. If this action is a legitimate action, but it will make Jesus look bad before people, don't do it. Because anything you do to tarnish the name of Christ, give the devil upper hand to defeat you. Anything you do to put the name of Christ into disrepute makes you to lose grounds in warfare. Strong believers are the ones who put the name of Christ first before their personal interests. The Lord gives you more strength. He gives you more power because you know that your whole life is standing for his name. Especially those of you God begin to lift you. The more God lifts you up, the more your life is a critical testimony to Christ or a disgrace to his name. So that's number three. Number three is what? The standard, the preparation of the gospel. Number four is what? Sorry? A shield. What do we do with a shield? He said, a shield of faith with which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The fiery darts or the fiery arrows. Did he say darts? I think the darts is the King James. The New King James said arrows. So spiritually, arrows are flying. Have you ever seen the Bible that said Arrows fly by day. Where is it? Psalm 91, yes. I just wanted to be sure some people know where it is. Verse what? Mm -hmm. Verse 5. Give me Psalm 91, 5. Psalm 91, 5. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. Listen, this scripture says that arrows are flying everywhere. Is that it? And in the night, it's even more, it's worse than arrows. It's terror. You know, terrorists don't believe in one, two people dying. They, they believe in mass destruction. Now, how many of you know that arrows don't fly by themselves unless somebody shoots it? So when the Bible says here that arrows fly by day, there's somebody behind what is making the arrows to fly, and that person is the devil. And the Bible said, you can't stop the devil from shooting his arrows, but you can block those arrows from hitting you. 
And how do you block it? The shield of faith. The shield of faith. I won't stay with this one long enough because I just finished teaching our faith. The Bible said in Romans 1.17, it said, the just shall live by faith. That means the just will die because of unbelief. Why? Because the arrows are flying and they hit you. Arrows of death. Arrows of sickness. Arrows of depression. Arrows of condemnation. Arrows of confusion. Sometimes you wake up, nothing is wrong, but you just realize that. I'm confused. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you are just scared to death. Who am I talking to? Sometimes you wake up and you just feel like, ah, something's about to happen to my children. You know, arrows are flying. Arrows. An arrow hits you. And a voice is telling you, you, you will never amount to anything. You, oh, you see your family, nobody prospers here. You will remain like all your uncles. It's an arrow. An arrow shot at you. You will never have a child. You will never have a child. You start hearing it. You start entertaining it. You start meditating on it. You start accommodating it. You start encouraging it before you realize it becomes a stronghold. You see, when Satan shoots arrow and you don't fight it back, then how do you fight it back? Faith. You say, no devil, it is written. I am a child of God. My destiny is not connected to my family background. My destiny is connected to whose child I am. <laughs> Hallelujah. I will make it in life. I will prosper. Not because of what I have, but because of Jesus. The Bible says, Christ in me, the hope of glory. There is hope for me. You begin to exercise your faith. And before you realize, that thing has left you. You wake up and you tell the devil, I cannot die before my time. I cannot die before my time. I have not finished my assignment. I refuse to die. Even if I am dead, I still refuse to die. Because it is written with long life, it will satisfy me and show me salvation. He said, the number of my days, God will, listen, why would death pass and come and kill somebody who is talking like this? No. Death kills people who have already accepted they are going to die. They will tell you, oh, I knew it. I saw it a long time. Where did you see? Oh, I, I had a dream. Who, where did that dream coming from? Arrows fly by day, terrors in the night. Some of you, listen, some of the dreams you have, they are demonic arrows. You woke up and you're like, your marriage was bro bro broken up in a dream. It was in a dream. Why should it happen? Dream is not the same as reality. You get up and say, Satan, wrong address. Wrong address. Wrong address. You break other people's marriage, you can't break my marriage. I declare my marriage will prosper. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. My marriage will do well. My marriage will go forward. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke the spirit of divorce. I rebuke every power fighting my marriage. In the name of Jesus. Look, it's faithful. It is warfare. Faith is warfare. If you sit down, you know, you know these days I don't know what is happening to me. Every night I have bad, 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 bad dreams. You are allowing them. There are some dreams that Satan won't keep repeating when you respond. You say, no, that guy, he knows too much. In fact, he's too no. Leave him alone. Let's go after those other, go after those other guys who don't know anything. <laughs> because Satan knows that. There are, some, there are some dreams when you have, when you wake up, you, your faith must react. He said, we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Mark 9, 23. All things are possible to him who believes. So when Satan is firing arrows, your faith is the armor that can handle it. Can handle it. Somebody say, I can handle it. <laughs> say one more time, say, I can handle it. <laughs> All right. Is it enough with faith, isn't it? The next one is what? Very, very important, isn't it? In fact, matter of fact, when you cut off somebody's head at war, can he fight again? Yeah. So Satan's target, most of the time, is your mind. Your mind, your mind, the way you think. If Satan can capture 
your mind. He has won the battle. Second Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4. Let me show you something. Warfare in the mind. That's why you must put on the helmet. Okay? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For what? For pulling down what? Strongholds. Now we are going to see where those strongholds are, right? And you'll be very, very, very surprised. Look at verse 5. Casting down what? Arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every word, thought, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The strongholds that verse 4 was talking about, he said, arguments. He said what? Argument. No, I want verse 5. Every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Where do you find knowledge in the human body? In the head, isn't it? Yeah. Arguments. Where does it start from? The mind. And bringing every what? Thoughts. Where are thoughts? In the mind. Actually, the strongholds of Satan, they start first from the mind. Satan's target is your mind. As a man thinks, so is he. If Satan wants to make you poor, he makes you poor in your mind first. No amount of money in their pockets will make somebody rich when his mind is poor. Poverty is a mindset. It's a thought pattern. There are people you meet them, you know, this guy will be rich. He has no money, but the way he thinks, you can tell. You can tell that Satan has lost the battle in that area of his life. Good marriage is a mindset. Bad marriage is a mindset. Arguments. Thoughts. So Satan attacks your mind with a lot of arguments, with a lot of philosophies, you know, ungodly philosophies. Philosophies like, should sex be after marriage or it can be before marriage? That's an argument, isn't it? Now, the youths will tell you that oh, once these people, two people have agreed to marry, they can continue to have sex before they marry. Is that what the scripture said? But people can use arguments to override biblical principles. Are you hearing me? The Bible said, give to God, he will bless you. Then people come and argue that, no, these days pastors have become crooks and they're stealing all the money, so let's, stop, let's not give again. Arguments. Arguments. Are you hearing me? Yeah, arguments. You know, the Bible said, work decently. Wait upon God and he will prosper you. Somebody will come with an argument and tell her, you know, these days, if you are not smart, eh? if you are not smart. So, you have to be smart small or you have to do some dubious things. Defraud people small. Balance things here and there. Look, look these days, it's not like Bible days. So we live in digital world. You have to be digital. This is 21st century. You have to know how to maneuver and, you know, defraud people small. The Bible said, do a genuine, decent business. People tell, people come with you with all manner of arguments. They will say, look, the people are doing the genuine business. How much are they giving in church? Charlie, the most important thing is come and give big tithes. Charlie, if you, if you make a million in one deal, you come, you bring pastor 200,000. Don't you think pastor will bless you more? So you put yourself into a business that is ungodly. That's why people go to church and they do ritual money. And they die early. Arguments. Arguments. So the helmet protects your mind from every negative thought patterns. And he described the helmet as what? The helmet of salvation. Salvation. What does salvation mean? I am a child of God. When I say somebody is saved, it means the person is what? A child of God. John 1, 12. As many as receive into them, he gave the right to become children of God. Salvation is child of God. So the helmet of salvation is having the confidence of whose child you are. And let me say, whose child you are, it matters a lot. If you can just get this, you will never be timid again. Nobody will intimidate you again. Whose child you are is very, very important. You know, can you slap a fetish priest's child when you know 
what his father is capable of doing to you. By the time the, the guy tells you, I am uh, how, uh, I'm looking for a name too. I am so so and so sad. He said, go, 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 go. Even if you don't have money, I'll give you transport. Go away. I don't want any problem. It's not about the child. You can beat that child. All right. You are stronger than that child, but when you think of his father, he said, no. So whose child you are? You know, anytime you meet a prince anywhere in the world, they say, this guy is the son of a certain king. One thing about prince, when you meet any prince, is that they are very confident. Over in Ghana, we, we don't have many princes because we, our chieftaincy is miserable. That even if you go to Nigeria, you see it more. Because they respect their kings more. Look, you will never meet a prince who is not confident. You know what made them confident? Because of who their father is. So a child of God must be confident. Because you are the child of the almighty God. Almighty God. <laughs> nobody can treat you anyhow. Nobody can take, nobody should take you for a ride. Nobody can toss you around anyhow. Nobody should talk to you anyhow. I may not have anything, but you can't talk to me anyhow. You can't treat me anyhow. Because I know whose child I am. That's nothing to do with where I come from. Come from a small, now it's a town, it used to be a village. Some of you even think your success is about where you come from. Some of you can't even mention which village you come from. You mention a town close to your village. <laughs> I'm a child of God. I said I'm a child of God. My father may not be rich, but I'm a child of God. My father may be nobody, but I'm a child of God. My mother is not educated, never went to school, but I'm a child of God. I don't come from, you know, a very prominent pedigree, but I am a child of God. And based on the fact that I am a child of God, and I have a loving, caring father, who is the almighty, all-powerful, I'm not a weakling. I'm not an orphan. I'm not a helpless person. Confidence. Confidence. You don't need anything to feel important. You don't need a dress to feel important. If even you don't have a dress, you are still important. You don't need a special watch to feel important. You don't need to have a car to feel important. The child of God is what makes you important. Long before that car came, you are important. And the car is not what makes you important. It is you that make the car important. I mean, I, I may be driving a rickety car going somewhere. You can have a brand new car, but you can be refused at certain places. I will not be refused. Because it's not about the car. It's about who is in it. Oh, yeah. It is not about the car. If I drive into this car park and the place is full, somebody's car will move. Yeah. So you must value yourself. It's not a weave-on that makes you important. I am not against nice weave-ons, so... I'm trying to say, if that is where your value comes from, then one of these days, this woman is going to get missing. <laughs> Look at 1 Peter 2 9. He said, But you are a chosen generation. Thank you, Reverend. Look at me very well. I'm, I'm, I'm too macho. You better treat me well. Tell him I, I could be your boss tomorrow. I could be your boss tomorrow. You see, this kind of thinking, it makes you feel great. It makes you feel great. It makes you feel important. Listen, it makes you treat yourself with respect. You don't do things anyhow, live anyhow. You don't urinate on the roadside. Ash, that one is too... Don't urinate by the roadside. Don't be walking on the streets, you know, you have ground on your hands and you're throwing them up and throwing it. 
I mean, you are a very important person. Listen, it doesn't mean you don't dress anyhow. Oh, I shouldn't go there. You don't dress, dress responsibly. Dress with dignity. Young ladies, dress with dignity. Put some dignity on yourself. Don't go out dressed. All your breast is on exhibition. You know, don't just dress as if you are a prostitute. No, you are the child of the most high God. You are a princess in the kingdom. Princess of the kingdom. Can I continue? Don't give yourself cheap to anybody because of iPhone. Oh, I should stop. You know, one day I heard some young guy saying, one day I heard some young guy saying, oh, even one pack of papaya, you can get her. All respect to ladies, but listen, don't cheapen yourself. I'd rather keep my body with no money and keep my dignity. What is a fool? What? If the right time comes for God to bless you, do you know how many phones you can own? How can you give yourself cheap? Somebody hasn't married you. You know, you are just walking on the streets and a guy called and said, hey, Ohima. <laughs> and you know what? You are excited. You are excited that today when I went out, some guy called me. No. Every young lady, listen to me. You don't need a guy to call you before you know you are important. I am telling you, you are very, very precious. You are important. That's why many men don't respect ladies. Because ladies, you chip in yourself too much. You chip in yourself. And it is part of the devil's own orchestrations to just destroy the dignity of the female gender. I was talking about this next week. You don't need 10 men to propose to you for you to have a good marriage. Pastor, no man has ever proposed to me for wait. The right person will come and you will have a happy marriage. Yeah. I tell because you know why I believe you, it will happen to you because you are a child of God. Yeah. And God is not partial. He loves you, he cares about you. And he'll bring it to pass. But when you know the guy is a bad person, but nobody's coming. If I leave, let him go. And the guy is treating you like he's doing you a favor. Like, seriously? Listen, how can you make a guy treat you like he's doing you a favor, marrying you? No, that foolishness must stop. Yeah. You don't give me sex, it's over. Tell him it's, it's, it's even over now. <laughs> Tell him, go out with your foolish face. <laughs> yeah, because a dignified man will not talk like that. You must love people enough to put value on them and not violate them. I'm talking to the young men now. Yeah, through love, you honor people by not devaluing them. Let's read this. I'm just about to finish. I'm just about to. Let's read together, everybody. No, no, make it personal. I am a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that I may proclaim the praises of him who has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Give the Lord a clap. Somebody put your hand on your chest and said, I am a chosen person. Do you know what it means to be chosen? It means there were other options. But God by looked through the many options and he selected you. Listen, you are not the only one that God said, well, 
What can I do? I, I don't have any other choice. Let me just manage with you. No, no. There were many options. But God selected you. That means you are special. Leave the right hand and say, I am special. Mm. These are things Satan doesn't want you to hear. He wants you to feel you are nobody. I said, there are many Christians who have inferiority complex. Inferiority complex is of the mind. They feel bad. They feel little. They feel small. They feel timid. They are not confident because the devil makes you feel you are nobody. You cannot get anywhere. But I came to tell you, this is the word of the Lord. Somebody say, I am chosen by God. Somebody say, I am a royal priesthood. So you have royalty flowing in your blood. Royal. Royalty. So you are not an ordinary person. You are a child of God. And God is the king of the universe. That means you are a prince and a princess. He said his own special person. And the reason why you are this is God wants you to be the one proclaiming the goodness of God. So the helmet of salvation is confidence. That comes from the mindset that you are a child of God. The mentality of a child of God. Somebody say, I'm a child of God. God loves me. You don't need other people to love you for you to feel important. All right. A child is also making a confession. He's declaring his, his destiny. Amen. Powerful child. Amen. Let's finish this up. Let's finish. Can we finish this, at least this one? We are now on number six. Okay, we are almost there. We seven, isn't it? Number six is what? The sword. And what did Paul say about the sword? Ephesians 6. He said, the sword of the spirit is what? The word of God. Everybody say the sword of the spirit. Is the word of God. 17. And take the helmet of salvation. So the helmet is what? Salvation. I'm a child of God. And what? The sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. The word of God. The word of God is a sword. Is he referring to the Bible? No. You can't carry the Bible and say, this is my sword. Satan, where are you? My sword is ready. And then you start hitting it at the devil. No. This is not a sword. Do you know what is the sword? The word of God in your mouth. In your mouth, Revelation. One sixteen, nothing. Everybody look at this. The Bible is wonderful. He had in his right hand seven stars. For us to understand what he was talking about, let's read from verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool. John was describing a vision he saw of Jesus. John was describing a vision that he saw. I tell people, if somebody is telling something, he's not sure of it. Be careful, because when you see a vision, it's so clear. It's very vivid. John could literally get an artist to paint what he saw. His head and hair were white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Oh, we'll come back to this later when I teach you about eyes were like flames of fire. That's why spiritualists can connect to you by their eyes. In fact, a witch can look at you and impart things to you. And you can also look at witch and reject the impartation. That's why sometimes if a minister I'm under a strong anointing, I get close to I look straight in your eyes that they fall under the anointing because the power of God can flow through your eyes. Same with demonic power can flow through the eyes. Sometimes when people are looking at you and staring at you too long, one thing is because you're handsome. <laughs> For all you know, they are projecting things. We will learn that one. We will study that this month. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went what? A sharp two-edged sword. 
and his countenance was like, like the sun shining in his chest. What John saw was, you can't imagine it. A human being that looked like the sun in brightness. But my emphasis is on one thing. He said, out of his mouth came what? Two edges saw. What is that? What does it mean? A human being to see in a vision, and out of his mouth there was a sword, and it was two-edged. Okay? Now, when it comes to Hebrews 4.12, the Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. Are you seeing it here? Then, Ephesians, Paul was talking about the spiritual armor, and he said, take the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. You get these three scriptures? You play them together. It tells you that it is not the written scripture that is the sword, but the word of God in your mouth that is the sword. That's why Jesus displayed that in the vision for John, so that it can help people in spiritual work. So when John saw Jesus, there was a sword in his mouth. So the sword, the offensive weapon in spiritual warfare is the word of God in your mouth, the declaration of the word. When you speak, you know many times when I'm doing miracle service, you see that I'm asking a demon to leave some of the, the demons are on go. I quote scriptures. Because when you quote scriptures, it's like you are cutting through the bodies of demonic spirits in the realm of the spirit. And when you quote two, three scriptures, that demon will change his mind. You don't handle demons without quoting scriptures. You see, when Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus did not say, Satan, I bind you, I inject you, I... I put pepper in your eyes. I fry you in oil. Jesus used the most powerful offensive weapon. What did Jesus do? He told the devil, it is written. It is written. A Christian who is victorious spiritual faith is the one who knows what is written. But you see, if you don't know anything that is written, it means you don't even have a sword. So you now understand why the number one item on the armor is what? Truth. You must know the truth before you can quote the truth. So you, you know, I quoted a, a scripture here before. I like that scripture too much. Jeremiah 5, 14 said, I'll make my word in your mouth fire. Why should you live the whole day and not release some fire when the thing is freely at your disposal? The word of God is at your disposal. I cannot die before my time. With long life, God will satisfy. I wish above all things that you should prosper and be in good. It is my God who gives me power to make wealth. The blessing of the Lord make rich and add no sorrow. I am rich and prosperous. I am blessed with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A thousand shall fall on my left, ten thousand on my right. It shall not come near me. Whosoever is born of God is an overcomer. You don't wait for the devil to come. Wake up every day with the word of the Lord and keep firing it against every problem in your life. Every situation. You want to defeat the devil? Look for scriptures that deal with your area of warfare. I don't know where you are battling now. Maybe it's finance. There are a lot of scriptures. If it's marriage, there are a lot of scriptures. If it's healing, oh, too many scriptures. If it's children, plenty of scriptures. I was married for four years without a child. I stopped praying because I got tired. But I never stopped quoting scriptures every day. You know, one day I was praying at 1 a.m. I shared the testimony for I was praying at 1 day. 1 a.m. And the scripture dropped into my spirit. Deuteronomy 7.14, I've never, ever, ever recovered from that. 
you shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your cattle. I said, ah, even my goats cannot be barren. How much more me? Even if your goat refuse to give birth, lay hands and say, by the word of the Lord, every animal in your house is fruitful. One day enter your house, they come, they must give birth. How much more you? There is no demon or barren that can survive this scripture unless you refuse to quote it. It's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Satan hates it when you quote scriptures. When I wake up in the morning, I have scriptures that I do as my morning ritual. Yeah, before I sleep, I have scriptures. You want to hear some? No, I won't tell you. Go and find your own. And yeah, the word of God. That's why you must memorize scriptures. David said, that word have I kept in my heart? The word of God must stay with you. Don't read it and forget it. Quote scriptures. When you do that, you are invading Satan's come with deadly missiles. Deadly missiles. Quote the word. Speak the word all the time. Speak the word all the time. What does God's word say about you? At least it says you are a child of God. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Instead of my shame, I'll have double portion. I mean, shame and disgrace cannot be my portion. If Satan make a mistake and bring it, it will turn into double portion of blessing. He said, there's no divination against Jacob. There's no enchantment against Israel. No weapon ah, formed against me shall prosper. Why should I be afraid of, of the devil? No weapon formed against me will prosper. Every tongue that rises against me in judgment, I condemn that tongue. Who quote scriptures? He said, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of God is my standard. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The Word of God. Quoting it every day. It must become your habit, and Satan will stay far away from you. Last one, number seven as well. Praying. Ephesians 6, 17. 18. Next week, we're going to start the structure of the demonic kingdom. What are principalities? What are powers? What are rulers of the darkness of this world? What are spiritual wickedness in heavenly places? Then we're going to look at who is Satan? Where does he come from? What are demons? Where do they stay? I'm going to teach you about the underworld. And that's why I'm going to answer that question, the gate of hell. I'll show you next week that demons are not fallen angels. This place is quiet. But that's all you all know. Satan, he came down with angels and they became demons. That's why you know. You know the wrong thing. Where did you know that one from? I never thought that yet. Pastors need to know this. So I'm writing a book on spiritual warfare so that Christians, pastors, you study it, then you can give the devil a knockout. Let's finish with this. Praying always. Praying how many times? Always. Okay. Some of you have changed this always into once a while. Some of you have changed this always to when there's trouble. Yeah. That's why even as a church, can I say something? As a church, there are people who think prayer meeting is not important. Prayer meetings for people who have problems. Friday night, you close from where you sit at home watching telenovela. A, a South American woman who is speaking Chi. You are watching. Instead of coming here, while I'm leading prayer, you are watching an Indian who is speaking Chi. That alone should tell us something is wrong with you. You that you are watching the, that telenovela. Some of you, when you sit before that, even if God is calling you, you will mind, you mind God. You will mind. If, if God is calling you, you will mind. Tell God, wait, let me, let me finish. The Bible said to be a winner in spiritual warfare, praying always. Always. Somebody say always. 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 Listen, prayer must become the culture of our church. It must become the habit 
of every person in this church. Daily basis, praying. Some of you, even this 40 days of fast, that would be only once a year. You will not do it. Hmm? Some of you are eating now. I know. I know. Meanwhile, you say you want to be blessed. You are eating at this time. He said, praying always. With what? With what? With what? No, no, he didn't say prayer. Wait. There's a difference between prayer and all prayer. All prayer means different kinds of prayers. Praying always with all the different kinds of prayer, including fasting. Someone say, oh, Pastor, there's whole spiritual armor. He didn't mention fasting. It's there. Fasting is part of all kinds of prayer. Because there are certain prayers you cannot pray it without a fast. I'll talk about that more next Sunday. There are certain prayers you cannot pray it without a shout. That's why there are certain prayers you want to do. You get out of home. There are certain prayers you can pray at home. Look, I pray like six hours in the house. You don't hear me in the next house. I can pray long without disturbing anybody. When I'm praying at night, I don't disturb my wife. She can sleep. It's not every time you shout with prayer. But there are times you shout. Hey, there are times you scream. Different kinds of prayer. There are times you pray in understanding. few minutes. For instance, if I'm about to preach. I've prayed short here. Father, anoint me, give me grace. Holy Spirit, give me utterance. I'm done. There are times you pray in understanding short. If you want to eat, that's not the time you said, um, let's thank the Lord for... <laughs> People are hungry. You said, uh, let's thank the Lord for our lives. That's not the time to be religious. Or let's sing a song of worship. No, 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 no. If you must understand the dynamics, that's what Paul said, praying always with what? All prayers. There are different kinds of prayer. There's a place of praying in tongues. Yeah. But there are issues where we are doing the mystery surrounding the issue. You have to be able to pray in tongues for hours. So Paul said, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. So if I pray in a tongue, my spirit is what? Praying. Yeah. It is referring to your human spirit. How many of you know you have a spirit? In fact, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. So your spirit prays. Makahasha, dili apparatus, Even our 40 days of fasting, daytime online prayer, we don't pray in tongues. Do you know why? Because we are leading people. I tell the pastor, when you come here to lead prayer on Sundays for the five minutes, don't pray in tongues. Do you know there are some people, if you raise a prayer topic and you say, let's pray understanding, they don't know what to say. Many of you have said, pray now for this brother. He's traveling to Kumasi and Kamba. Pray for him. That's his Father Lord. I commit him to her, oh Lord, um, oh Lord, oh Lord, in the name of Jesus, oh Lord, in the name of Jesus. So the reason for praying understanding is to teach people. That's, why, that's what we do in SGC. Uh, praying online, we pray in understanding with relevant scriptures. So because people are watching all over the world. But the night prayer, how many of you were online on Tuesday when I was leading? Yeah, you saw that there's the, the night prayer, Dr. Butabu said, hot, full of fire. So Paul said, when I pray in tongue, my spirit is praying, but my understanding is unfruit. Do you understand what I just prayed in tongues? You don't understand it? No, but my spirit has just prayed. So it may mean nothing to you, but it has gone before God. 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I'll leave that one there. The next one, I will leave it for another time. I will pray with the spirit. That one is what? Praying in tongues. And I'll pray with understanding also. So there's a place for praying and understanding. There's a place for praying in tongues. There's a place for fasting. There's a place for, for short prayers. There's a place for long prayers. There's a place for night prayers. There's a place for midnight prayers. Prayer is not just prayer. There are dimensions of prayer. There are dynamics to prayer. Effectively, effectively, dynamics to prayer. 
how to handle and maneuver yourself in prayer and keep the devil where he belongs. Even look at Jesus' life. I don't know if you know Jesus was a very prayerful person. Yeah, he fasted for the days of the night. He prayed all night. Luke 6:12. Give me Luke 6:12. He prayed the whole night. Can you imagine? The Son of God praying the whole night. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. That is Jesus. Give me Mark 1:35. Prayer life of Jesus. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, that means at dawn. At dawn. But there are certain times you have to take charge of the day because of the relevance of that day. He risen a long while before daylight. He went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. Alone. Alone. Pastors, you must have a personal prayer life. But you know, another time he was going to the Mount of Transfiguration, he went to the disciples. So there's a place for prayer team. There's a place for prayer warriors in church, but there's also a place for your personal prayer life. Because prayer warriors get tired sometimes. Very important. You must have a time for your own personal prayer life. Prayer is not something you outsource. You must know how to do it well. Nobody was born with it. We all learn it. The effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. The effectual, fervent prayer of the... This man, I want to assure you that your prayer is going to change things. Oh, I didn't hear your amen better. I said, your prayer is going to bring a shift in your life. The effectual, fervent prayer. Who can tell me where that scripture is? The effectual, fervent... Is it not in James 5? 17, thank you. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's 16, oh. It's not 17, it's 16. I was going to give you a gift, but you missed it. <laughs> the effective. So prayer must be effective. Some prayers are not effective. Have we learned something today? Put your hands together for the Lord. Hope you've been blessed by today's message. You can contact Reverend Hubert on 030-340-7970 or 024-33-11201. Remain blessed.